in this episode of the Connor Carrick Podcast. I need to be better at that last 20 miles. I need to find a way to be able to stay on top of it for there. It's it's funny how it kind of comes full circle to a degree with that stuff where I, I use that as a huge motivational tool. And last fall when I when I did break the record, when I got to mile 80, I remember when I saw that split, when I hit 80, I thought to myself, I was like, you know, it's been four years since that that event that I fell apart in the last 20 miles. And now I find myself back in this position where I have an opportunity to not let that happen. So it goes back to like kind of using some of those poor experiences or some experiences that that didn't work or using those those low points as a as a tool or in a piece of experience to kind of leverage a, a better day down the road. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Connor Carrick podcast. I am your host, current New Jersey Devils defenseman Connor Carrick. I am very excited about our guest today. Our guest today is Zach Bitter. He is an ultra marathoner. Uh, he is the current 100 mile, 100 mile, that is almost four consecutive marathons, world record holder, in which he ran in 11 hours, 19 minutes, and 13 seconds. He is also the current uh, world record holder in the 12 hour, that was a flat track run at 104.88 miles in 12 hours. That's truly astounding. I'm, I'm really excited to share with you uh, his his process, how he talks about uh, his relationship with self-reflection, self-talk, how he trains uh, physically, mentally for such a grueling uh, and and really unique sport to to compete for that period of time is something that as a as a hockey player is so different from what I do. Uh, so let's do this. I'm very excited to talk with him today. He's also the first guest that I don't have a direct relationship with, you know. So kind of trying something new as a as a podcast host. Uh, grateful to, to that Zach was able to lend us both some of his time today. Let's do this. Zach, um, I am. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited to, to talk to you. I, you're one of the first guests I'm, I'm speaking with, honestly, for the first time. We just met, you know, in the five ten minutes we we're talking before we started. Um, but take us through, like, talk to me about sort of your introduction into ultra marathoning um, as a, you know, now being a world record holder in, in the hundred mile. Uh, you've obviously built a, a really strong career, but it doesn't sound like something you just kind of like tread into. Uh, lightly, you know, you have to decide that you're going to run the distances that you do. Um, and I'm super interested to hear just sort of who, who steered you that direction, how you ended up in that field. Yeah. Well, first kind of, thanks for having me on. It's always cool to check out other podcasts and, um, you know, hear from other athletes too, especially I, I, I love following my own sport, but I also love following sports that are relatively polar opposite to mine because then i think there's some interesting congruences even with the with the the differing and stuff especially coming on the nutrition front but yeah you know i've been probably introduced to running from a very early age when i was in middle school we did the presidential physical fitness challenge stuff and uh i kind of found out pretty quick that the mile run was my strength versus like the shuttle run or the Mm. pull-ups and all that stuff so um, that kind of got me a little interested being kind of a young kid, you tend to gravitate a little bit more towards what you're good at, I think. And 
you know, my parents have always been re were really supportive about getting me into a variety of different sports and just kind of like feeling out what I liked, what I was good at, what I wasn't so good at and everything in between. And, and that kind of led into high school where I started to kind of take running a little more seriously. Uh, probably my, my, my sophomore year, I, I realized I, uh, probably should focus primarily on running versus some of the more like, uh, team sports, although cross country is a team sport, but like, it's a pretty big individual effort at your, on your, your own race. Um, but then probably by my senior year in high school, I started taking it seriously enough to want to kind of train for it year round. And, uh, college cross country and track is when I probably really got excited about just understanding like why we do certain things. Like even my senior year in high school, I trained year round, but I was basically just doing what the coach told me to do and assuming that's what, what you, you should be doing. And, you know, thankfully my coach was a big fan of the sport, so he knew what he was talking mm -hmm. about. But, um, in college I got interested in learning that myself. So I understood like, well, this is why we would do, you know, mile repeats one day, or this is why we would do a long run on the weekends and stuff like that. And, and that really kind of got my interest. And as I looked more and more into the sport and kind of continued to understand where my strengths and weaknesses were within endurance sport, I got a little bit fascinated with this ultra marathon stuff. So after college, when I didn't really have the structure of a team and a coach any longer, I started kind of just gravitating to doing the workouts I liked the most, which tended to be kind of the longer runs. So I went on this a bit of an endeavor of just kind of building volume at a relatively low low intensity just to kind of see where my limits were with that. And that led me to my first ultra marathon at the end of 2010, a 50 miler in, in Wisconsin. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate enough to have a, a good enough day that I had a, a positive experience and win the race. So that kind of got my, my appetite increased a bit to start. Uh, I remember the first time I read about an ultra marathon with any real interest in college, uh, I thought, you know, I'll probably do my first one when I'm like 30 and uh really just exhaust where my potential is at like 5k's 10k's marathons mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff first but uh when i was 24 and i jumped in that 50 miler i kind of started steering a little more towards that and by the end of 2011 i was basically training exclusively for for ultra marathon stuff and and then uh since then i've just been kind of like continuing to learn the sport finding out which events which distances which terrains and things that i i enjoy the most and really trying to kind of uh, use myself as a bit of a, an experiment to some degree in terms of kind of finding where my limitations are. And uh, I really like kind of the, the process of preparing for a race as much as I do like a great result or a race itself, because you just learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about where your physical strengths and weaknesses are, you know, where you can maybe tweak things to make improvements, you know, what went well, what didn't, and then kind of go back to the drawing board and start building again for another event. Well, that's part of, you know, you touched on it there where, um, you know, one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you is you do have this inherent sort of curiosity. You seem to be looking under any stone that you think might improve your performance. Uh, and I think, you know, just given the nature of your sport, if you do not um, love the process, if you're strictly result oriented, there's such a long payoff that you have to wait for, for, for your result that I really respect any endurance athlete because really in, in team sport, your, your passion is our punishment. You mm -hmm. know, if, if we're going for long periods of time, it's because we're getting bag skated. There was a, you know, a, a poor effort and, and, you know, that our coach is unhappy with, um, you know, when did you realize that you could use this curiosity really to your advantage and what, um, you know, steps have you taken mentally, physically, 
you know, to really try and, cause you try to be the best, right? And anything you, you try and do, you're not out there. It, it, while it is fun, you also race to win. Um, you know, how, what have, has been the biggest bang for your buck in terms of what you've began to learn about yourself now from 24 to, you know, you're 33 now, uh, and you know, kind of at the top of your game, like what were some of the big steps that helped you exponentially get to where you are now? Yeah, I think a few kind of come to mind. Uh, one thing I learned about myself is I respond pretty positive to high volume training. So mm-hmm. for me, you know, putting in like a 5,000 to 5,500 mile year or averaging around 100 miles per week of running is something that my body tends to respond, respond pretty well to. Um, I didn't get there overnight. I was probably a low volume runner going into college. And that's when I was first introduced to high volume training strategy. And uh, but since then, I've gradually kind of built up to where I can sustain kind of that stuff without doing doing too much damage. Uh, and then it's uh, the next thing within the framework of that is just periodizing my training schedule so that I'm at at where I need to be for the race specifically I'm training for. And, you know, folks who do endurance sports will recognize like periodized training scheduling. That's a pretty popular route of preparing where you're doing uh, you know, a lot of race specific type stuff close to the event that they're trying to peak for. And that same principle, in my opinion, falls with ultra marathon. It's just, it's really skewed from an intensity standpoint to the lower end of the spectrum on race day. Hmm. So kind of learning kind of the order of operations to ideally get ready. A lot of people come into the sport and they think, okay, I'm running hundred miles or I'm running 50 miles. I'm just gonna go run a lot. And, and, and that works to a degree because they are kind of hitting the race specific stuff by doing that. But there is some value, I think, when you're starting to kind of get to your potential to kind of go back to the drawing board and do some of those shorter, faster intervals and some of those lactic threshold, like longer intervals and tempo runs uh, as you lead up to the kind of key session of training where you will really focus in on race day intensity. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of benefits from kind of periodizing like that from just a muscular balance standpoint or running efficiency standpoint raising kind of the ceiling on your aerobic capacity as well so you know that's something i learned along the way too it's like it's not as much as just going out and grinding out 100 plus miles a week every week you know you can step back from that a little bit and and introduce some intensity earlier in the training plan and work your way to that and you know rather than trying to run the same amount of miles every week give yourself an opportunity to kind of take a step back and do a little less during parts of the season but then ultimately when you're within that window where it's really kind of crunch time so to speak that's where you kind of like, you know, punch the gas a little bit on mm-hmm. your your overall volume. So, you know, I'll have weeks where I'll hit 150 plus miles, but that's relatively unsustainable year round. So I'll sit on that kind of that volume for maybe three, four, at most maybe six weeks leading into my taper for the event and then kind of rest up and be ready. And, and then I'm kind of uh, I've sharpened the spear, so to speak, to the skill set that I'm going to need on race day about as finely as you can. Uh, without maybe overreaching so much that you show up on the starting line injured or a little burnt out. Yeah, I've done that. I, um, you know, even in our own training. So as a, as a team sport athlete and as a hockey player, you play, you know, 82 games a year. And prior to that, you have a month long training camp. Um, and hopefully after that, you can play up to 28 more hockey games, you know, with seven game series, uh, you know, four rounds of playoffs all the way to the Stanley Cup final. And that's been something mm-hmm. I'm 26 now, um, you know, kind of, entering my, my physical prime, you know, for hockey is I've tried to do a better job of, of making my highs high in terms of like, in terms of intensity in my own training, whether I get to like a nine, 10 or even 11 out of 10, you know, like a really flooring it on the days where I am. Um, and then throttling down, um, 
you know, instead of training in like that seven to 10, uh, seven out of 10 difficulty, I'll drop down even like the five, six, you know, or even a, sort of a four out of a 10 day, more mobility work, uh, longer, lower heart rate, just kind of to get some, some blood flow and get the tissue healthy to train really explosively again. Uh, but it's definitely something that like earlier in my career, I would just kind of out of nerves and, and wanting to get ready for the test. Like I would totally stack August with all sorts of volume. I would, I would just still be jamming in the gym. My ice time would be up, you know, to, to an hour or two a day. Uh, and I showed up, I think there was a one year as a Washington capital in particular, I, I had stayed there in the summer and I showed up really flat. I was doing uh, like two a day workouts, four or five days a week where I would, I would train mostly weights in the morning and then, you know, run in the evening. It was just too much volume. Um, you know, and, and, so you, you clearly have this awesome process that you've refined, you know, over time, but I want to know like specifically the night before a big race, like what is, what is your self-talk like? What is your process even into, to what you eat? You know, cause as a player, you're really only, you're really only worked up for like your first day of training camp your first real preseason game, your first, you know, regular season game. And then after that, they progressively start to feel more similar. And you get up for, uh, there's like an extra, you know, bit of butterflies, maybe for a, a really good opponent, an old team I've been traded a couple times. Um, you know, but after that, you're pretty consistent day in, day out as a, as a pro hockey player. And that's what, that's really the skill set, right? You're trying mm-hmm. to show up as the same player every day. The coach needs to know, you know, what they're getting as an asset out of me. Um, you know, but what is... You know, when you are worked up, if you still get worked up, what is that night before sort of process? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that's where our sports maybe diverge a little bit where uh, you kind of have so many repetitions of game day that you can kind of normalize that experience or get a little bit of muscle memory, so to speak, with it. Whereas with ultra marathons, you know, a pretty heavy racing season for me is going to be like six, maybe eight events. And I'm probably only peaking for maybe two or three of those. Mm-hmm. So um it, it can be a little bit of a, a difference in the sense that you're going to have a little bit of that anxiety. And I think that makes sense when you spend, you know, months preparing for a single event and then you get closer to it and you, you realize you put a bunch of work and a bunch of attention and all that stuff into it. You, and you want to, you want to make it bear some fruit. So, uh, I think just like, you know, one thing I do like to do is like when I do have other events that maybe aren't my peak race, just kind of do you do those as like dress rehearsals as like, okay, what do I do the day before? What do I do the morning of? What are, what's my best strategy for fueling during the race and things like that? And give myself a little bit of opportunities for that. Um, I'll also use my long runs on the weekends to kind of practice as a little bit of a dress rehearsal type thing to try to simulate race day a bit. So I have a little more of that kind of intuitive nature like you have going into kind of those mid-season games, I'm sure. Um, for me though, nutritionally, uh, you know, I follow a high fat, low carb diet, which is where we probably merge quite a bit from a nutritional standpoint. And you know, what that means for me as an endurance athlete who is sometimes burning two to three times my resting metabolic rate is I'm always kind of consuming fat as my primary macronutrient. And then it just depends on like how much carbohydrate I'm going to kind of flex in throughout the course. And during like certain phases of my training where I'm basically off season or low structured, I'll go down to like almost a classic ketogenic uh, framework. And then when I get into the peak training where I may be hitting those 150 mile training weeks, I won't be afraid to flex my carbs up a little higher on maybe 20% of my intake. So when I get to the point where it's time to go for a race, you know, I'm probably one or maybe even two weeks into a taper. So my volume and intensity has, uh, has settled down quite a bit compared to those peak weeks. So my energy output has also certainly on the intensity side of things, 
and I just don't have a huge need for a fast acting fuel source like a carbohydrate during those kind of couple weeks leading into the race. So I actually start planning on race day nutrition kind of already at that point. And I'll go very low carb for, you know, a week or two leading up to the couple nights before the race itself. So if I have a race on say Saturday morning, you know, Thursday evening, I might start to reintroduce some carbohydrates the way I would during peak training, uh, you know, just to try to top off my muscle and liver glycogen a little bit going into the race. And then morning of, since the race itself is so low intensity in most cases, I'll have a, a, a fatty protein-based breakfast. I try to stay away from carbohydrates for the most part before the start of the event because I want to start, I want to kind of leverage the overnight fast mm-hmm. um, and then starting burning a high level of fat at the beginning so that I'm kind of defending my liver and muscle glycogen throughout the course of the event versus kind of spiking that process by, you know, taking in a high-carb breakfast or taking a, a like a gel or like a fuel source thing, like at the start line, like you see in some cases. So going into the race, uh, you know, I'm the, at least the, the hours before I'm staying really low carb. And then once I'm maybe 30, 45 minutes into the event, I'll start kind of fueling, fueling the, the way I would during the race itself. And I'm usually targeting for peak races around 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour on some of the like kind of lower level races where they're just training races or structured long runs, I'll go as low as maybe 20 grams an hour. Um, and it's, uh, it, the, the way I like to describe it is, you know, even at my leanest, the leanest endurance athletes on the planet have enough body fat that a fuel tank is unexhaustible during an event. So I don't have to really worry about fat oxidation from a consumption standpoint on race day. Uh, muscle and liver glycogen are the ones you can potentially deplete even not these lower intensity events. So, all day, I'm basically out there running with one of my fueling goals is to defend liver and muscle glycogen. So one of the ways to kind of do that is to kind of like, even if I'm super fat adapted, there's going to be points in even a long race where my intensity is high enough where I'm tapping into that liver and muscle glycogen, even without eating carbohydrates. So I will gradually deplete that source uh, by the end of the race if I don't uh, defend it a little bit. Uh, so bringing in a little bit of exogenous carbohydrate sources during the event, I find is kind of helps with my performance a little bit. And that's where I kind of come into that maybe 40 grams of hour, uh, 40 grams per hour. Or so of, uh, I've, I'm using a product right now called, uh, by a company called S fuels called race plus. Mm-hmm. And I like their stuff cause they're kind of their foundation stuff as high fat, low carb. And, uh, they work with a guy out in, uh, uh, New Zealand who'd be an interesting guy to talk to probably down the road for you if you want is a uh, Dr. Dan Plews. He's a he's an Ironman uh, age group world champion and a, a PhD in exercise phys and nutrition uh, out in New Zealand, uh, Auckland, and he's uh, really come up with a lot of good research and a lot of good uh, kind of pointers for endurance athletes, especially extreme endurance athletes who are kind of have a foundation in high fat, low carb, but also recognize that a little bit of carbohydrate can go a long ways for someone with that kind of a nutritional approach on race day. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the pro sport of hockey was a little bit behind on, uh, you know, the physical development side really up until maybe 10, 15 years ago. And then, you know, the strength coach got really popular in hockey. Players really started to, to weight train and, and you know, bike and run and, and develop, you know, sort of a more well-rounded sense as an athlete. Uh, and I think sort of the, the next wave, um, you know, is occurring right now, which is like the skill coach uh, acquisition, you know, similar to football. You look at football, there's 200 coaches on the sidelines. There's a quarterback coach, there's a lineman coach, there's this coach, there's that coach. Uh, and players, you know, started to 
begin to like individually consult just a little bit outside their team, you know, to continue to build like uh, player identity and, and that kind of thing. And that's going on right now. And I, I think a little bit of the next wave, and I know just uh, for myself and some other teammates, there's been uh, a little bit more focus on nutrition and like functional medicine doctors guys are using because, you know, it's so difficult. Uh, hockey, you know, guys used to kind of rely on their skill. You know, you'd play the game, uh, guys would have, you know, three, four beers on the bus, you know, eat whatever was on the plane and then, you know, go out and play the next one. And just like that, the, the easiest way to play poorly is to be injured and, or to feel crappier or, or sick. And so I think now players are realizing you can't build career years over one night. You need to always be making these sort of deposits of these investments in your health. And it's something that I took on when I, I was lucky to play as a Toronto Maple Leaf. You know, it was kind of like a mecca of sort for um, alternative medicine. I, I met a couple of different functional medicine doctors that I really liked. And I did the, um, I think it's called Utrients was the profile. It was sort of like a DNA uh, spit test. I did that alongside like a Nutraval. Um, you know, which did more, I think that tested more for like minerality, uh, amino acid profile inside my body, trying to see any overgrowth in the gut and things like that. And these are all developing sciences, but it was really interesting. The nutrients, uh, I had a, a phone call with Dr. Mansoor Muhammad. Uh, I did where he explained to me without ever meeting me like insanely intimate knowledge about the ongoings of my body. And mm -hmm. it was so cool. Uh, he was originally the one that directed me towards sort of like a cyclical uh, ketogenic diet. So sometimes in season, most practice days, of, and I, I've been around long enough where I kind of know, okay, today's going to be a lighter day. Today's going to be a heavier day. And I'm not as fat adapted as, as you are. I haven't had the, the years of experience yet. And I think there's just a little bit, still a little bit uh, less control just given like our travel schedule and that over, over meals. But I've tried to use like 25 to 35 grams of carb on most practice days like 108 to 190 grams of protein. My protein's pretty high still just given my body weight. And then I think it was like 190. I got to look at the sheet again. I got it all written down. Uh, but honestly, when I stick to it and then I would sort of supplement with carbohydrate pregame, I would use a little bit of uh, sweet potato for lunch and things like that. And, and, you know, post game, if I was playing a lot and I really like this because what I found was as a player, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a depth player. I'm not a defenseman playing, you know, crazy minutes every single night. Honestly, my mental acuity was like more important than like maybe how my jump felt, how I felt physically sometimes with the carbohydrate. When my carb intake was really high, I would feel super sluggish, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just because of the chronic travel. Um, and I, I mean, I'm interested to see, I think, you know, a lot of the superstars are setting the tone. They, you know, have more income, they have more resources available to them where they're really trying to invest in their body. And, and it's kind of been with the organizations I've been around, the better players sort of dictate culturally what the organization has to offer in terms of like daily supplements available and things like that. But it's, I think hockey in the next really even three to five years is really going to revolutionize just on the nutrition and training side with all the sports science development to try and keep guys fresh. Cause it, it's too long a season. You can't just guess and check your way around. You're, you're going to be mm -hmm. wrong. Uh, it, it's, it's too valuable. The, the NHL is too tight. There's too much parity, you know, to leave it to chance. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting to follow s sports like hockey and, and National Basketball Association for that very reason where it's such a grueling season and, you know, you have these weird times of games, I'm sure, where, you know, you might have nights where it's like you can't control when you go to bed or you can't control like when you have to wake up in the morning and 
And yeah, so I think at that point, you almost have to try to dial in the things you know you can control uh, to as much of a degree as you can. And then, and then recovery's got to be such a huge kind of a piece to that puzzle for you too when you're in the season and you want to be feeling consistent from from one game to the next. And I think that's maybe where where you're probably heading in a good direction too because I know when I switched to a high-fat, low-carb diet, one of the reasons I did it is I felt like I was a little more on a roller coaster ride over the course of the day where you feel great for a couple hours and you feel mm-hmm. like you can take a nap and then you feel great for a couple hours you feel like you take a nap. And like it's hard to time that if you have a game at 7 p.m. and you hit that roller coaster at the wrong time and then you know, that can cost you the game versus you know have a, a really good a really good day. So I think I really like kind of the the more like kind of steady, like even lined energy output I have following a, a more of a high fat, low carb approach. Yeah, I mean, the recovery is huge. And I'd say that's where, you know, it's a little bit of what I'm doing with this podcast. There's, so there's really sort of like three groups of listeners that I really try to, you know, speak with is one, I get a lot of questions from young players about, you know, what's your pregame meal or or what's your pregame, you know, self-talk, right? And I, I you know, engage in that conversation. I get a lot of uh, discussion with like 20-somethings trying to do something, you know, kids my age out of school, you know, trying to take the next step professionally or, or with their own health and then sort of heads of household, moms, dads, um, you know, asking for, you know, little Jimmy, how they can help them, you know, their, their son or daughter play uh, at a higher level as a student athlete. And that's somewhere I've began the, to, to shift the conversation is, you know, I think as athletes, we all, we've, we see it, right? Like we see like the, the pre-race pump up the pregame that the, the player walks in with their beats headphones off the bus. And, and, you know, there's sort of the visualization practice and these things are kind of inherent and they're, they're taught at a young age. But one of the things that's really helped me maintain consistency is having a post game sort of process. I used to often be a player that we'd play at seven, you know, the game gets over nine, 10, whatever you get back to the hotel or, you know, on the plane at 11. And, you know, there's a lot of nights where if there's travel, you're not hitting the sheets until 2am, you know, and, and if you've, you played poorly, if you want to obsess over a mistake or things like that, mentally, you know, have the hamster upstairs running all night, you can be up. I mean, I I've done it where I've been up till four, five, six, even 7 a.m. with a meeting at 11 the next day for the mm-hmm. next game. Um, you know, so for me, my process is often like no matter what now, when I get in a hotel, I'll kind of take like a cool shower, try and bring my temperature down, usually just from flying and, you know, the EMF and all that, you know, the the bad light. Um, you're usually a little stirred up still. You know, we use uh, a lot of caffeine is used in NHL locker rooms pre-match. So you're you see guys slamming espressos at 6.30 p.m., <laughs> you know, trying to get their resting heart rate up to like a buck 30. Um, so I'll, 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 I, I've totally cemented like my post-game routine. Cool shower. I'll usually do like a headspace or like a breathing uh, technique of some sort. The box breathing's great. Um, you know, if I'm up for something a little bit more intense, I'll use some of the Wim Hof protocol. And then that sort of brings me down into being able to rest. And it's like... as if I could walk in the hotel room and fall asleep right away, that's what I do. But I'd rather sort of invest my my baseline, my routine to get my body ready for sleep. Um, that's kind of my my post game routine. But what recovery you know tools do is common you know for you in running? Just because I I feel like you would have a better experience with like chronic injury or more uh, overuse. You know more. Um, just given the the repetitive nature of the sport, I'm I'm so interested to hear like kind of your tricks of the trade. 
Yeah, yeah. I think like the overuse repetitive injury thing is probably the big one. And then when you get to be, if you, when you get into the actual different kind of disciplines within the sport of ultra marathon, you have like such a wide range of kind of like mountain athletes versus kind of more runnable trail and then road and track and that sort of stuff. And for me, I've kind of skewed a little more towards the flat runnable stuff. So mm-hmm. that just opens up a probably an even bigger door for potential overuse because you're just kind of going through a little more of a similar mechanic over and over again than you would be if you're running over the kind of undulating terrain on a trail on a regular basis or exclusively in some cases. Uh, so, you know, I like to focus on things to kind of prevent the imbalances. So I'll do like I'll do a strength training program that I like to kind of keep keep myself from getting maybe like quad dominant or deactivating my glute muscles and things like that. So, you know, it, it's not anything that's super spectacular on paper. It's basically your basics, like your squats, deadlifts, some kettlebell swing type stuff. I'll do some like core, uh, resisted core work and things like that um, from strength training. And I do think that that helps kind of keep me uh, from having certain parts of my body underdeveloped and others overdeveloped to the point where it puts too much stress on one spot. And, uh, you know, I've had a, some lower leg kind of overuse injuries really early in my career. I lost a couple, a season, an indoor and outdoor track season in college due to some Achilles tendon stuff. And then I've had some IT band stuff in the past. But since ultra running, I haven't had as much of that. I've had only one injury that really even sidelined me for any any meaningful races. So, um, that's something I've just been kind of fortunate with, I guess. Uh, but also with the recovery side of things, I think it is also like one big one that I think a lot of times gets overlooked is sleep. Uh, you know, that's another reason that kind of drew me to the high fat, low carb diet was my sleep had historically been really well. I was a great sleeper in high school. I could go to bed, wake up eight, nine hours later, and then be good to go until bedtime. And in college for the most part, case I kind of continued that trend but somewhere along the line between then and starting ultra marathon running I would you know wake up multiple times a night and I noticed that that was just not only inconvenient from a time standpoint and at that time I was also a full-time teacher so losing an hour or two uh of uh productivity to try to sleep more because I couldn't stay asleep was just not really a good solution given right. you know some 20 hour training weeks in the midst of a full-time job and that sort of stuff so uh that's one thing I really tried to kind of uh, be a little more conscious of. And the start to that was like just switching diet up and that seemed to help quite a bit. I started sleeping consistently through the night again. And and then kind of some similar stuff like that, which you talked about where trying to avoid uh, blue light at like later hours of the day, not staring at the phone while I'm in bed, trying to fall asleep, um, trying to eat dinner a couple hours before bedtime. So I'm not uh, you know, trying to digest a full meal as I'm trying to fall asleep at the same time. Uh, temperature regulation is a great one too. And that's a tough one here in Phoenix sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just watch that energy bill go up <laughs> if you turn the air on no. too high, but um, it's probably worth cooling off a bit to try to get some good sleep in the long run. Uh, but yeah, I mean, those are like, those are kind of the key ones. And then kind of like I said in the beginning too, I think not getting too one dimensional with my training or too fixated on just doing a lot of long, slow miles all the time. Cause you know, that's going to put you in a position to overdevelop in some areas, underdevelop in others, and then just get that chronic overuse stuff. So kind of, you know, being cautious when I get into the short interval stuff, because, you know, that stuff is a little more abusive on your body Mm -hmm. in the acute fashion. So you definitely want to start slow. And I definitely do. Like when I start doing high intensity stuff, I might spend a couple of weeks where I'm just doing like some short strides or like um, really short intervals, but not too many of them. And then I start kind of really targeting like VO2 max type workouts where I'm doing three minute intervals basically at all out intensity for those three minutes. But the first week I might only do a three by three on that 
just to kind of let my body adjust and feel out kind of how I'm going to respond to that type of an intensity and and then over time kind of build up volume at that at that intensity week in and week out for a few weeks before moving on to a different system of training and I really do think that kind of hitting all those systems are really beneficial to like your your health and like kind of longevity from an injury standpoint and just keeping things more balanced and and less kind of one-dimensional yeah I agree it's been something that you know in in hockey for example um, the sport has become so 24 7 365 it's become highly specialized there's like these hockey uh, schools for kids which are like you know specialized prep schools where the kids don't even go to a classroom anymore they take a couple classes at the rink and then they skate in the morning they skate in the afternoon our our sort of issue in hockey is more so hips and shoulders shoulders from contact but hips just from trying to balance on you know a thin piece of steel on ice all the time and that's something that you know in terms of recovery uh, that is kind of how my that is proactively how I try and go about it in season is just trying to maintain uh, strength and general athleticism so that I'm arriving at the time of, of competition, a more ready and resilient athlete. And that kind of lessens the load on the recovery side. Um, you know, the, the blue light one is huge. It is, it is funny. I didn't even remember uh, when I first went low carb, uh, my wife and I talked about it where I used to uh, like sweat the bed heavily when I was eating a, a higher carb diet, I would wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom multiple times. Uh, and it was something that like over the course of a couple months, as I got more and more uh, low carb, more and more higher fat, it was something that I didn't even realize was kind of like an ancillary benefit. Wow, I'm, I'm sleeping really well. I'm sleeping consistently. Uh, and again, going back to the concept of control, like there are going to be nights where your sleep is beyond your control as an athlete that travels. So, you know, you have to, you got to be able to put, make those deposits, you know, when you, when you can. Um, one of the things that I think uh, I've really worked on in my personal life is the way I grew up was, you know, the conversation around getting better was never be satisfied, never be satisfied. It can always be better. And I think that gifted me sort of a curiosity to see, you know, where I could always be better and, and you know, a, a strong sense of self-reflection. I always knew what my strengths were. I always knew what my weaknesses were. And I was always trying to play to one and work on the other. Uh, but what is sort of your self-talk from the first step of the race all the way through the end? Because, you know, what I found is sort of that never be satisfied mentality can be abrasive. It was a little hot sometimes to deal with. Uh, and it would kind of, it can be discouraging when you hear that voice enough. Um, you know, so in terms of, I'm always interested in any sport where there's a lot of solitude, like swimming, uh, running. What is the sort of ongoing conversation in your head? Because there is that your sport is so well physical is, mm -hmm. is extremely mental. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, um, I think you're spot on with just like you want, I think you want to be critical of yourself because that's how you recognize mistakes and you recognize weaknesses and open your mind to like making changes when things aren't working. But you know, that can be abuses if you're just constantly beating yourself up mentally and physically and only focusing on the negative. So, I mean, this is a part of, I think, sport and it's certainly the sport I do where a little bit of balance is good too, where you kind of, you know, if you find yourself fixating on your, the weaknesses or the things you don't think you can do or you're doing wrong, also make sure you're thinking of, okay, well, what also went well, what benefits did I draw from this too? So you kind of still have that positive outlook kind of to pair with uh, the motivation to get better. And, and during the race, it gets really interesting to me because you're right. I mean, it's, it's definitely physically demanding to run a hundred miles, but, um, it's really, 
it, it really kind of ebbs and flows a little bit because early on in those races, the physical demand is quite low relative to what we can sustain because we have mm -hmm. to pace ourselves to be able to push hard on kind of the back third of a hundred mile race. And uh, uh, the thing I find interesting about that is you can kind of work yourself up into a bit of a frenzy while you're trying to be patient early on. So, you know, those early miles that uh, can be a little less physically demanding allows your mind to kind of like ask a lot of questions. So uh, you can find yourself 10 miles into 100 miler thinking like getting a little overwhelmed maybe about, oh, I've got to go 90 more miles or how am I going to get myself to that last aid station or to that last mile? And you really have to kind of discipline yourself not to think about that. So for me, I'm always kind of pre-planning like different little benchmarks along the way that I can kind of hyper-focus on during the event so I'm not thinking of too big of a process at any one time. And, you know, that might be if I'm out on a trail race, it might be aid station to aid station where my first goal is just to get to that first aid station. I'm going to make sure I'm running within myself so my intensity isn't too high that it will cost me time at the end of the race. Uh, but it'll also give me something that's a little more achievable from wrapping my head around to get to that spot. And then, you know, you get to that one and then you can move on to the next aid station. So it's a little more kind of built in with some of the trail races. With some of the track timed event stuff, it gets a little more interesting because you're on maybe like a 400 meter loop like I've done in the yeah. past. And then you're, you've seen the entire course after like less than two minutes. So <laughs> then you have to you get to get kind of creative and imaginative about like what you do. And for me, you know, when I'm doing my long runs on those tracks, I try to practice like just getting myself into, I guess, what you maybe call like a flow state or a little bit more of a kind of a meditative state or daydreaming, whatever you want to kind of label it, where, you know, I'm consciously trying to separate myself from the, the environment I'm in and pretend I'm somewhere else. And sometimes that can just be going in with a lot of different kind of visual cues that put you out somewhere else in your mind. Uh, the hard part about that is you also have to make sure you're hitting your splits so when I do these track events, I can see my pace every lap if I want. So getting really in tune with like your perceived intensity so that you don't have to be just spot checking every lap is ideal for me. So like what I'll do is I'll spend a few laps early in the race kind of dialing in the effort within the range of uh, time I'm trying to look for each lap. And once I kind of dial that in, then I'll start going into that kind of uh, state where I'm kind of removing myself from the environment. And I'll do that for a while. And then I'll spot check every once in a while, or if I have a crew out there, I'll have them kind of let me know if I'm falling off pace so I can kind of recalibrate. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, those are kind of like my, my tricks for the mental side of things. And then I think the one thing that I really like that's worked well for me, especially in the last year or so, is when I'm doing my long runs, just really making those kind of a priority to uh, visualize myself at that point in the race. So if I'm doing like a 30 mile long run on a Saturday morning, I'm going into that workout thinking, okay, when I start this, pretend I'm at mile 70 of a hundred miler and let's just walk through that. Mm -hmm. And what I find is the more I do that, that kind of visualization process and training, the easier it gets to execute in that part of the race. So the, the best example I probably have was last year in August at the Pettit Center when I broke the world record for hundred miles in 12 hours. When I got to around like 68, 70 miles, it, my, my, my mind just clicked right away. Oh, this is just one more long run now. And I was no longer thinking about breaking the 100-mile world record or the 12-hour world record or that I was going to run 100 miles plus that day. I was thinking about just doing one more long run, which I had done, you know, eight, nine, ten of in the weeks leading up to that. So to me, that really kind of normalized a part of the race that could have been a very big, and in the past had been a very big mental hurdle to kind of get over. 
So I think that that side of this, that just really highlights the mental side of the sport. Uh, you know, it, you, it feels like it's intense and it's really hard on your body at the end, but in reality, the intensity is still very low, sometimes even lower because you're slowing down a bit. But um, I think if you can really harness that mental strength and learn what's going to work for you to keep you motivated, uh, that's what's going to kind of really get you your best days. Yeah, the visualization I find is is huge. It's been something I've used a, a ton earlier in my career, uh, and I've really done a better job bringing it back. There was a period there where I wanted to challenge myself and see if I could just go out there and play. You know, the, there are players in the NHL that kind of have this laissez-faire. They just show up and their their talent, you know, comes out of them. And and you know, I was I wanted to see if I could be that player, and I kind of I kind of wasn't. You know, there are certain words that I kind of use to myself. Um, you know, like I, I try to have like a hunter's mentality, you know, where I'm always hunting the play. One of the things I use to myself is do the work early. So as a defenseman, you know, so much of uh, the NHL is you have to be, there is no getting into the right spot. Mm-hmm. You are either already in the right spot or if there's any extra effort to readjust your skating or your pace of play, the, the, the play is going to be coming down your throat, you know, too quickly. Um, you know, so kind of having those, those triggers, um, you know, to reset yourself uh, mid-competition or even mid-shift has been a big help. I've been trying to, uh, even in my own training now, uh, just because usually, you know, we are on quarantine. I'm kind of hanging out at home. I'm, I'm, I live in Chicago. Usually I kind of have like a space, right? Like I, so I jump in my car. I have a 20-minute ride to the rink. kind of have my music or a podcast, you know, listen to, uh, you know, to, to get in the zone a bit. Uh, and now I just have like four or five steps to my upstairs rooftop or I go out, mm-hmm. you know, on the cement outside and, and train. So one of the things I've been trying to use is like almost like an alter ego where it's like, okay, you know, home Connor, like family Connor, it's time to sit down for a bit. Like it's, it's the athletic side the the B side is, is going to come out and show its face for a bit. Uh, and I found that to be, you know, really helpful. And, you know, I did have, maybe this is a little petty, but I, in my career, I am someone that'll chirp a bit, like, you know, try and get under other players' skin, uh, try and bother people, say things, you know, uh, that'll irritate them or things like that. I don't know if I have a face sometimes that people want to hit, but it, it seems <laughs> I can be decent at it. Like, I, I know this is petty, but like, are you trying to run your own race or are there, is there ever like trash talk in ultramarathon? <laughs> I know it's a, it's a crazy question, but like, you know, do you talk shit, you know, on, on lap? 2,655 to your competitor. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I think, I think that's kind of an interesting thing because you get like the kind of the cultures around certain sports that kind of either favor or don't favor that a bit. So, um, and I get it with hockey. I think the, the culture of hockey has definitely kind of grown up with that where, you know, it's not real. No, no one's going home offended by it because everyone's coming in expecting it to happen. It's kind of part of the game. Whereas ultra running kind of and at least in the United States, I think it probably varies across the globe a bit. But in the U.S., like ultra running has seen like kind of these peaks and valleys throughout its kind of conception. And mm-hmm. you get phases where it got really popular for a bit and then it would tame down and no one even knew what it was other than a handful of people who were doing it. And we're kind of at a point right now where we're in a big upsurge again, where we're getting a lot more people participating. Events are like, you know, just popping up everywhere. So um, but when it kind of had its most recent resurgence, it kind of had a little bit of a grassroots thing where like, it was just a bunch of people showing up on a trail one morning, kind of going and we're going to run all day and then we're going to drink some beers, that kind of mentality. Yeah. So it, I think it kind of got, it developed at least on the trail side of things in the United States as like this, 
a little more of a like like uh you know be like just run and then you know talk after kind of a thing so you don't see a whole lot of that in the sport uh you'll see a little bit here and there kind of it's, it's basically all joking for the most part but um and then you get people talking now that it is like there is a you know enough people interested in it both at the participatory level and well as just you know watching and following a sport where you'll see things get said and and the, but amongst the folks competing it's not really something that i see too often um and I don't know if that's just because of the relative low intensity. I, I think uh, when you have you've, when you have sports like yours, where it's like I mean, it's literally dangerous to be skating full speed mm-hmm. and potentially running into someone. So like if you can get under someone's get into someone's head a little bit, or you know when you're lining up like a a slap shot or something like that, if you can get in someone's head and have just a little voice in there, I could see that being like a pretty big competitive advantage if it when it when it works. So, um, but yeah, with ultra running, I think like. A lot of folks are, it's, it's kind of changed a little bit. A lot of folks kind of are still trying to run their race because you know, most people who've done it for a while know if they get out ahead of themselves, they're going to pay twofold at the end. So like if I go out too fast trying to follow someone who set a bla- blazing pace and, uh, you know, I make up 10 minutes in the first 20 miles, I might give back 20, 30 minutes in the last mm. 10 miles if I had ran more patient and then run a slower overall time than I would have if I had just done what I know. So usually what I do is when I go in, I kind of have like an upper limit of this is how much I will tease if I feel I need to, to kind of keep someone in touch. If it's a race where it's, um, you know, a lot of competition, and if it gets, if someone decides to be really bold and take off much faster than where I drew that line, I let them go and just say, okay, well, either they're going to have a great day and I wouldn't have beat them anyway, or they're going to come back and they're going to look like they're not having a much fun in the last 20% and I'm going to yeah, have I'll a blast. You, because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'll find you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there is a little bit of that too. Um, and it, you, you kind of learn that. And it's tough, too, because, you know, you the sport's gotten competitive now, too, especially at some of the shorter ultra distances of like 50K to 80K, uh, where, you know, people are are testing the limits of what's possible. So if someone gets off hot off the starting line and you can look and say, oh, yeah, they're like well ahead of course record pace. There's no way they're going to sustain that. And then every once in a while someone does, you know, we redefine yeah. what's possible on a specific course or a specific event distance. And and I think that's kind of cool, too. You see some growth in that. And you also see a lot of folks, uh, you see a little more in some of these competitive races where you have a group of, say, 10 guys or 10 gals going out at a pace that's a little bit outside everyone's comfort zone. And the majority of those folks are going to blow up and have a bad day. One or two of them are going to hang on and just like have the race of their life and break the course record or something like that. And I think that's kind of cool from the standpoint of moving the sport forward in terms of trying to find out kind of like, well, what's the human body possible in this particular event? Where's the intensity threshold where you can't go past? And I think we've learned a lot about that in the last decade or so in the sport from from when I started doing it to now. And I think that's kind of an exciting time to be to be in a, in a sport when it's kind of growing to that degree. Yeah, I was going to guess that. Like if you got to have a certain, you know, common respect, you know, for the man or woman lining up next to you when, you know, you're all you're all volunteering to go run 100 miles that day, just in terms of the, you know, personal fortitude, you know, amongst the competitors, like even in the NHL, there's there's definitely a lot less chirping at the National Hockey League level just because of the respect for for really everyone that's in the league. It's such a hard league to get into, but like in the American Hockey League, like our minors, uh, our minor league system and things like that, it's it's a total jungle down there. Like guys are getting after each other, shift in, shift out. Um, what are uh, 
What is that like when you're running a race and you do feel it start to crumble? Like what is what I guess what is in your running career, you know, your personal high and and what does that feel like when you're just you know you're hitting your stride, you know you're in that last, you know, like you said 30 miles and and sweet spot. It's just like you got the nitrous or need for speed, you know, back in the day or on the other side, what's that feel like when it's crumbling and you overestimate your abilities that day? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. I mean, I've had so many experiences like that too, and it's easy, especially for me right now, because last year was by far my best year of uh, competition. And you know, so I had a lot of positive ways. I had a lot of those, uh, um, those experiences where I felt like I had the gas in the tank to really have a solid day and feel good about it and, and not, not have a whole lot to nitpick. Uh, but you know, I've had, I've had it on the other end and it's, uh, you know, I've, I did a race, uh, I've had somewhere it's ended really badly where like, you know, I drop out at 60 miles of a hundred mile race. Cause I just didn't have it that day. Or I tried to stick to a game plan that wasn't appropriate for the particular environment that I was ended up being in and, and ended up paying for it. Uh, the one that kind of sticks out in my head, it wasn't a bad day by any stretch of the imagination, but I felt like I kind of left an opportunity on the table was. In 2015, I was targeting the world record for 100 miles at an event here in Phoenix called the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. And I was on world record pace all day through 80 miles. And at the time before I broke the world record last year, the average pace for the 100 mile world record was about six minutes and 52 seconds per mile. And I got to mile 80 needing to average seven. So I was a little bit ahead even. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I got to 80, it was like I had started racking up a bunch of seven and a half minute miles and I just couldn't couldn't quite put the pedal down to the get back on pace. And I slowly kind of slipped off world record pace and ultimately ran 11 hours, 40 minutes and broke the American record for hundred miles. But I kind of knew in the back of my mind, like I need to be better at that last 20 miles. I need to find a way to be able to stay on top of it for there. Um, and you know, that's probably part equal or equal parts, mental and physical, uh, you know, it's, it's funny how it kind of comes full circle to a degree with that stuff where, I, I used that as a huge motivational tool. And last fall, when I when I did break the record, when I got to mile 80, I remember when I saw that split, when I hit 80, I thought to myself, I was like, you know, it's been four years since that, that event that I fell apart in the last 20 miles. And now I find myself back in this position where I have an opportunity to not let that happen. So uh, it kind of, it goes back to like, kind of using some of those poor experiences or some experiences that, that didn't work or using those, those low points as a, as a tool or in a piece of experience to kind of leverage a, a better day down the road. And, um, you know, fortunately for me, I've been able to kind of, uh, have a race where I can look back and say, say, yeah, maybe things didn't go perfect before leading up to this, but I definitely needed those experiences to get the experience I ended up having. That's awesome. Where is, um, you know, I, I know you've been, you were saying you do a lot of the, the track style, the flat style runs now. Um, but, you know, you have to have been in some pretty cool runs in the world uh, and, and seen some pretty beautiful um, terrain. What's uh, what's one of your favorite runs you've ever had just in terms of the the scenic view that you you were able to, you know, take part in? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I've raced uh, around the world a bit. I've done uh, the Gobi 100K in China. I've done the Comrades Ultra Marathon in South Africa. Raced in Winshoot in Netherlands for World 100Ks, uh, Doha for World 100Ks, and Spain for World 100Ks. And um, so I've gotten to see some cool spots. Uh, there's a race called the Terraware, 102 kilometer over in New Zealand. And that's where my wife and I went for our honeymoon. So I've been to that cool. that event, and it's pretty beautiful. Um, 
You know, I in stateside too, like San Diego 100, I really like some of the views you get on the Pacific Crest Trail section of that course. Um, there And there's there's races that are way more scenic than ones I've been to too. My, my wife's done this race out um, in Europe called Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, and it, it goes up uh, – uh, into the Alps and you just get some of the best views you can imagine. And so there's a lot of kind of cool opportunities with that. So I'm hoping to even improve my, my scenic experience <laughs> going yeah, forward yeah. a bit. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, with the hockey rink, we don't get too many opportunities. Most of the rinks look the same. I, I mean, some <laughs> of the end game, you know, uh, atmospheres and that, like that's kind of our, our carrot, right? It's it, mm-hmm. certain rinks are, you know, super hyped up and uh, the in game experience is super cool. Like, uh, for example, playing in Vegas is bananas. Like yeah. the the uh, just how loud the warm up is. It's like a DJ mix. The place is just on fire when you're walking uh-huh. out for warm up. You're resting hard. You're sitting there just like standing at the blue line waiting to take warm up shots. And you're 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 like you know th- throbbing with the base of, of the arena <laughs> and that. But there was uh, there was one international turn. I was playing for the U.S. development team. We were over in Switzerland, and it was pretty cool. Like the the walls on the rink. We're like three quarter of the way up, and then the last quarter was just open, and then mm. it like connected to the to ceiling somehow, and you just saw out on the Swiss Alps, like you saw yeah. the mountains during the game. And the tournament was a little light, like we were winning, you know, pretty big every every game. So it was it was this super cool, fun experience. It had this uh, this turf soccer field in the back of the rank where we, you know, guys kind of left their warm up and just decided to play a big soccer game before the game. It was one of my, you know, personal favorite. Uh, memories. Um, but Zach, I wanted to, you know, one of the other things I'm, I'm really impressed, you know, with you, obviously your, your sport is incredible to, I I'm, uh, an amateur fan. I, I think it's super cool. I, I wouldn't recognize a lot of the, the big names in the sport, but it's definitely something that, uh, endurance sport is something I try to learn from. And, and I definitely have learned a lot from you today. Just your sense of process is really admirable, but you also, um, I understand you're you're doing a charity run soon, which is part of the timing in which we wanted to uh, bring some more attention. Where you're doing a 12-hour treadmill run. Uh, talk about you know what uh, you know charity you'll be serving and kind of the dynamics of the of the run and how people can support you. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the the interesting things with all the COVID nineteen stuff is, uh, as you can imagine, events have all basically been canceled, seasons have been canceled, and that sort of stuff. So you know, athletes like ourselves are kind of left with. Uh, you know, plenty of probably training opportunities, maybe a little different than what was normal, but uh, not a whole lot of outlets for it. So I started kind of thinking when it became clear there wouldn't be any racing for at least the first half of the year, like how do I want to kind of express my energies from the training I'm going to be doing? And uh, I had met uh, a guy named Justin Wren a while back, and he has a, a charity called Fight for the Forgotten that started when he decided to raise money and uh, volunteer over in the Congo to build wells for the Pygmy tribe. Mm. And uh, he's since grown that organization to the point where now they build farms over there as well. But but he had identified the Pygmy tribe as like the most forgotten people on the planet and he wanted to kind of start there. And since then, he's kind of continued to grow the organization to where now they're kind of developing some curriculum for mostly middle and high school uh, schools around the country to kind of uh, combat or uh, just put an educational component around like bullying prevention and things yeah. like that. So he just got a lot of cool things in the works and he's uh, a really ambitious guy who has uh, a lot of compassion, I think, for other people. So I was um, thrilled to be able to get into contact with him and help him out a little bit. And uh, I really started uh, 
getting to know him a little better when I uh, decided to do a, a project that I'll be doing next year, actually, where I'm going to run from San Francisco to New York called the Transcontinental Run of about 3,100 miles. And I wanted to do it to raise awareness and, and funds for his charity there. So um, with the connection I had with him there, when I decided to do a 12-hour treadmill or go after the 12-hour treadmill record, uh, I thought, you know, let's make this more than just, uh, you know, me hopping on a treadmill and documenting it. Um, uh, let's live stream it. Let's bring in guest speakers. Let's bring in some hosts uh, to kind of come in virtually and and comment on what's happening, talk about their stories and their sort of stuff. And then uh, as we bring in people to kind of watch that and get entertained by that, I'll, I'll be the most boring aspect of the production. <laughs> I think being on the treadmill, the guest speakers are going to be great and they're going to, I think, entertain a lot of people. Uh and uh, I thought, let's let's put a let's put a, uh, a donation link to his charity there and make this about raising awareness and funds for for his cause. So um, if people are interested in kind of following along on that, my my YouTube channel is where we're going to live stream it. And if people are interested in participating virtually, we actually have 250 slots open for people to join in on the video uh, through uh, through Zoom. So if you sign up on uh, sfuelsgolonger.com, they've got a sign up sheet there and you can sign up to run for part of the day and kind of virtually hang out with me for a bit while I'm trying to see what I can do for 12 hours on the treadmill. It's unreal. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate, you know, your sense of service and I've, I've heard of, uh, uh, James Wren's, uh, you know, charity and, and, you know, certainly, uh, a cause I want to learn more about. So I appreciate you, you know, bringing, uh, the attention you are, um, to that, you know, I've been asking this question, you know, just given, uh, you know, COVID-19 and, and different guests have taken it really cool, interesting ways in terms of what they're focusing on, on out there in the world right now, because that's kind of how I've handled this quarantine is I've tried to become uh, really curious about my own process. I've been able to step back from the day-to-day -day rigors of, of our NHL season. I am kind of have had this established routine of postseason, you know, very similar to, you know, to when you're talking about periodization, kind of how I would you know, scale back the intensity, try and get healthy after a long season, get sleeping good again, ramp it up, you know, chill out preseason. But there's been a little bit of like postseason focus on getting healthy while also like this reintroduction of, I read uh, Stealing Fire where I, I really try to dive into flow state and, and skill development. So trying to kind of touch base with like rollerblading and some of my outdoor like stick handling work that I used to do as a kid, you know, and that's been a really fun uh you know, sort of, of process, but what in the world right now is kind of lighting you on fire? What's a thought that you continue to revisit right now? What's uh you know, a piece of advice you've been using for yourself or, or for those that, you know, might be looking up to someone, you know, with your mental and physical fortitude, um, you know, what have you been thinking about a lot lately? Yeah, I think just from the kind of more macro level, just with all this uh, uncertainty with kind of COVID-19, I think just kind of stepping back a bit and recognizing kind of how good we we kind of do have it mm -hmm. uh in especially in developed areas of the world and that's not always the case in other places so part of me is trying to appreciate you know here we have some limitations where i can't do some of the things i would like to do but you know a lot of people on the planet can never do the things that i want to do because they just don't have access to that sort of stuff they don't have the um, the opportunity to. So kind of trying to reconnect with that a little bit has been, I think, a, a good practice just in general. And then also kind of forward thinking too, thinking like, well, what, what can we learn from this to kind of better ourselves down the road to not only try to help prevent something like this from happening again, but also 
just uh, be better, better equipped with um, being uh, being adaptable and being able to kind of respond to uncertainty and not necessarily guarantee like my schedule is this every day and it's going to happen no matter what kind of a mentality and realize like there's other things and there's other people other than myself that are, you know, important too, and they have their own idea of what they want to be doing or should be doing. So kind of keeping, kind of keeping things in perspective with that has been kind of a, uh, a good practice, I think for me, given kind of the, the unfortunate situation that we're in right now. Yeah, it's beautiful. Zach, I, uh, I really appreciate, you know, all your time today and, and just, you know, sharing a lot of, of what makes you and your sports special. It, it's, I definitely, learn a lot from, you know, your persistence and, and consistency of mindset and, and, you know, your dedication to process. If people want to find out uh, more about you, they want to learn about, you know, your coaching opportunities. I know you have a podcast as well with Dr. Sean Baker. Uh, how can people go ahead and, and, you know, find more of you? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And uh, the spot to find me, that has got a, kind of a link to everything's on my website at zachbitter.com. I'm probably most active on Instagram and Twitter at Instagram. It's at Zach Bitter and Twitter at ZBitter. And if you're interested in listening to the podcast or checking it out, it's a human performance outliers podcast. That's awesome. Um, Zach, thanks, man. I, uh, what a cool sport, truly. Um, <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and we will, uh, release this I know in time for uh, your charity run so I'll, I'll definitely uh, share share this one to all my followers and let them know where cool. to find you and we'll have to get you on our podcast down anytime the road and, would love to and uh, hear your story in a little more detail I think it'd be fun would, would love to so uh, you just let me know I want to say thank you to all of our listeners right now wherever you may be in the world uh, thank you for your time today thank you to our guest Zach Bitter truly an exceptional person an exceptional athlete I learned a lot about you know really myself and and I'm going to try and steal from some of his curiosity around his process and, and just what a committed individual to, to being his best at his, uh, his sport, truly an exceptional individual. I, I really appreciate his sense of service. Um, you know, a, as an athlete trying to be creative with, you know, like he said, his competitive energy that's, that's pent up in this COVID-19 quarantine time. Instead of doing a small business shout out today, I wanted to talk about uh, the charity that Zach Bitter will be running for on May 16th. He is running uh, 12 consecutive hours, as he mentioned, uh, for, for the charity Fight for the Forgotten uh, to build wells in the Congo for the Pygmies. Um, it's a charity I'm I'm beginning to learn more about. Uh, truly uh, a noble cause and and a tall effort that Zach's going to put up you know, to try and raise money. So if, if that's a cause that uh, you can get behind, if, if you know you really... Uh, enjoyed our time today with Zach, a way that you can give back to him and, and help him serve his mission in the world. Uh, check out his charity event, the 12-hour treadmill run this upcoming May 16th. Again, for all of our listeners, all of your comments, your likes, uh, your subscriptions goes a long way in helping us grow this podcast and it helps me grow this platform. It's been a really uh, rewarding you know, process for me. In the meantime, I'm very excited to see where we can go. Thanks again for sticking with us and thanks again to our guest, Zach Bitter.